Thanks for listening to this MC Podcast Extra. Due to the holiday and a couple technical difficulties, we're sorry we weren't able to post Monday as regularly scheduled. We think this extra will make up for it, though. In this episode, Master's Choice CEO Kevin Kuhn speaks at a recent non-GMO conference about the ever-changing non-GMO market, Project Non-GMO Verified, and what it means to you as a producer, and what it means to us as a supplier. This is great content and clears up a lot of common misconceptions in the industry. We really hope you enjoy it. All right, we're going to jump into a section here, and uh, and we're going to cover um, we're going to cover a few things here. But uh, what I want to what I want to where I want to end up here is I want to uh, I want to talk about seed production and specifically uh, producing seed that's going to meet these non-GMO thresholds that we're that we're shooting for. Um, and in order in order to get us there, I'm going to run you guys through some. Uh, some seed production slides. I want to talk to you just a little bit about the process of seed production uh, so that some of this will make sense when we get to uh, the actual details on how we're going to go about producing uh, seed for project non-GMO farms. And um, some of this may be review for a few few of you guys, but just, uh, you know, as, as we travel the country and, uh, you know, meet with dealers, meet with customers, uh, it's always it's always kind of a surprise for us to run into a lot of folks that they don't really understand the process of, of uh, seed corn production. Um, so just to make sure we're all on the same page, I want to kind of run through some of that. Um, and, and I guess before I get too carried away, I'll, I'll introduce myself for those of you that don't know. Um, my name is Kevin Kuhn and I am CEO and uh, Director of Research and Development for Master's Choice. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll jump right in here. And, and the first shot we've got here, um, now this is, uh, so this is kind of step one in, in seed corn production. This is a, a, a overhead view of our nursery this summer. Uh, this is, it was in southern Illinois. And when you look at, these, uh, look at these images here, you see these different ranges that are broken out here. Um, every time that you see a break in that range, every row there is a, is a unique genetic line. And, uh, you know, at, at this point, uh, this, is, this is where we are developing the inbreds that are going to go into hybrid seed production. Um, and, you know, we're looking at, at all, different, uh, uh, all different stages of, of inbred production there. Um, but that's, that's kind of where, where things uh, get started at. Uh, here's a, another another view of uh, part of the same nursery, uh, but there you see you know there's a there's a lot of material out there, a lot of different genetics. So when we're working at this nursery level, um, and I don't know how well you can see this, but um, it, we're, we're working in a controlled environment, so we control all of those pollinations. Um, if you look here, you see so you see these larger brown bags, and then you see on each plant you see these little white these white bags. Now those white bags there, those are shoot bags. Um, and what that is doing, that shoot covers, uh, covers that shoot before silks come out. So what that does is that ensures us that no pollen is getting to those silks until we're ready for it to happen. So we control which pollen specifically is going to go to each plant. Now those larger brown bags that we're seeing here, uh, what we do with those is we will put those over the tassels, leave them overnight, uh, to capture pollen, and then as soon as as soon as everything dries out the following morning, we'll take that pollen and uh, deliver it to specific silks. So everything there's controlled. We know exactly what crosses we're making, um, and and at that level, we're able uh, we're able to really police it very well. That uh, you know, 
we know exactly what's what's happening out there whether we're making a self or whether we're making a hybrid cross uh, you know every everything is is uh, kind of uh, strictly controlled uh, this is this is just a uh, kind of a summary of what inbred development the inbred development scheme looks like and, and what I want you to take from this is just kind of the timeline here um, so when, whenever we start, we start over here, uh, year one, this is where we make our, our SO cross. Uh, so at this point, we're taking two inbreds that are, uh, that are somewhat related, um, and we're going to begin developing an inbred from that cross. Now, um, the, the total timeline for developing that inbred and getting it where we need it to be uh, tends to, is, is going to wind up being in the ballpark of five years. Um, so we're investing five years into that thing before we start making our hybrid testers. Um, and you know it's not until we make those first hybrid testers that we decide is this going to be something that's going to have um, potentially even become an experimental to test in the, uh, out in the country or not. Um, so by the time we, we wrap this entire schedule up, um, you know we're looking at you know six seven years to finish an inbred line uh, and then start running into some of the uh, some of those experimental crosses. So there's a significant amount of time that goes into this process, um, but you know, we, we talked about this this timeline here. This is all; these are all hand crosses. This is all happening in the nursery, so it's all controlled. It's not until we get up here into this finished inbred line that we start to we start to actually put things in a field and let them self pollinate. Uh, so that's that's the point where uh, where we start having to watch our planting times, watch our buffers, and things like that. Um, so, but anyway, I, I want you to just kind of see what that timeline looks like. Um, you know, so looking at seven, eight years invested into uh, putting together a, a, a finished inbred and actually getting to hybrid seed production that's going to go out to the customer. Um, I, I stole these slides off of uh, Cullen, our plant breeder. He, he was utilizing this, uh, these in some presentations this summer. Uh, but you see there, as we, uh, as we are developing those inbred lines, every year that we self that plant, we make a selection and self it, um, we are, we're getting to a, a, a more homozygous um, plant. And when we do that, we get more and more uniform rows. Um, our tassels are the same, our ear heights are the same, brace roots are the same. Uh, so we take, what we're doing is we're taking all the variation out of that crop. We know exactly what we have and exactly what we're going to be working with. So it's not until we get down here to this stage that we're actually ready to go to a hybrid seed production field with the, uh, with the plants. So we talk to, we're talking about inbred development and <clears throat> when we're looking at, uh, we're looking at inbreds, uh, we're talking about a dramatically different plant than what you see from hybrid seed corn that's out in the field. Um, and here is a visual, you've got, uh, you've got an inbred on either side and then the cross in between. So there's the, the hybrid in, in the middle. You see how much we increase plant height, how much we, you know, we, we greatly increase plant health, seedling vigor. When we create that F1 cross, that, that is what's actually going in the seed bag that's going out to the customer. Um, and there you see the drastic difference in, in ear size. Um, you know, if, if, if we can yield, um, you know, 40 to 60 bushel range off of, uh, off of an inbred increase of one of our females or off of a seed production field, we've done pretty well. You know, drastically different than what, what a, a grower is expecting out of his hybrid seed. Um, but there again, where we, where we take those two pure lines and cross them together is where we, where we wind up with that, that F1 hybrid cross that, that creates that, uh, that heterozygous, very vigorous plant. 
So now as we, what we're going to kind of start transitioning into here, we've been talking about uh, inbred development and um, so before I jump into right here with this hybrid crossing, you know, I, I want to point out, so after we finish the, the nursery work where everything's controlled, we're going to go to an inbred increase. Um, inbred increases, basically I take that pure inbred seed um, and, and what's been happening is as we've developed that, we've been making hand crosses and every year we're, we're saving a few hundred kernels of seed. Um, and so eventually what I've got to do is I've got to build up enough kernel count that I can go out and plant about an acre to three acres to do an inbred increase. And what that's going to do is going to, we're going to basically take that out, plant it, allow that, that inbred seed to self-pollinate itself. Uh, we'll plant that in areas where we can get isolation, we can get good buffers in. Um, we get that inbred increase. That is then the seed we're going to use here in our, our crossing fields. So the fields you're looking at right here, this is an example. This is one of our, our seed production fields in Illinois. Um, and what you're looking at here, uh, you're looking at um, a, a, a planting scheme here where you have one, two, three, four rows of female, and then you have male rows on the outsides. Um, so if you look, so what we're doing here is we're pulling the tassels. So if you look behind, you can see those real distinct male rows that are still sticking up. Uh, that's where the, the tassel's been left. And what's going to happen here is those male rows are going to pollinate those female rows. So what's happening is we're, we're controlling the cross again. We're just having to do it on a larger scale. Uh, you know, you know we're, we're not able to, obviously not able to run out here and shoot bag and do all this by hand. In order to make this work, uh, we've got to take measures to give us isolation to ensure that we're not, we're not getting uh, cross-pollination here. Um, and, and we'll jump into kind of some of the details of, of things we're doing to, to help with that. Um, but just so you understand the process here, you know, um, basically these, these four rows, uh, all the tassels are, are removed. Um, if we didn't do that, if we, if we miss tassels, and, and we'll go through here with the, these pullers. So each row, there's a, the machine's going to pull the tassels, and then we'll send walking crews behind just to make sure that we have all female tassels out. Because if we don't, then we're just producing inbred seed. You, you, you have plants that start uh, self-pollinating themselves, and instead of producing hybrid seed, you're looking at inbred seed. Uh, and obviously the grower's not going to be happy if that's what winds up in the bag. Um, so so that's, what a, that's what seed production field looks like. Um, and this is, this is just a, a very crude graphic that, that's kind of uh, demonstrating what that, that looks like. You see here you've got tassels left on the male rows on either end, no tassels on the females in between. Um, now those male rows are going to get destroyed before we harvest. So the only thing that comes out of the field are those four female rows. Uh, all those male rows are going to get, we have a, a, what we call a male destroyer, basically a big steel wheel that, uh, that we roll down the field that, that will, uh, will knock all those male rows down to ensure that we're not harvesting any of that. There's no risk of that getting mixed into production. So that's, that's kind of what, what, uh, what the scheme looks like for, for hybrid seed production. Uh, so I wanted to run through that kind of quickly so you guys had a foundation before we start jumping into non-GMO. Yes? Yes, yes. At, at this at this point, you know, uh, when we're when we're kind of setting up our goals, we're factoring an average of about 50 bushels an acre is what we're shooting for. Yes. Does it make any difference on those uh, crosses which which one is P1 and P2? You just, you just pick the higher yielding one for the female. So. <laughs> You know, it, it's kind of interesting. Um, so typically, and, and you saw those, uh, if we backtrack here just a minute, 
um, if we look at this here, so if I were to look at these ears, this, this is going to be my female 99% of the time. This is going to be my male. Um, so when we do, we're deciding which one to set up as the male, which one is a female, a lot of it's going to be based on the ear type. Uh, it's also going to be based on pollen shed. So if, it, if I'm going to have a male that's going, to, that's going to work well, it's going to have to shed pollen. And, you know, and there are a lot, of, a lot of inbreds that we work with that just don't. You, you have one little twig of a, uh, of a tassel, and, and there are some males out there that are like that, but, but they're really difficult to work with. Um, and in some cases, you can, you can use an, an inbred both as a male and as a female, but it really just depends on what you're crossing it up with. Um, but, but yeah, I, ideally, it's going to be one that's going to put on more grain uh, for the female uh, is kind of the goal. Any other questions before we jump into non-GMO stuff? All right, so what I want to transition into now is, is looking at um, GMO corn. And, you know, I, I talked to you about when we go to a, a crossing field uh, and even the inbred increases that we have to have isolation and we have to take measures to make sure that we're not cross-pollinating um, with, with other corn that's out there, whether, you know, and, and that, that's in two different forms. First of all, if, we're, if I'm going to produce a non-GMO seed crop, I got to make sure I'm avoiding uh, uh, GMO pollen that's drifting out there. Um, I also, I, you know, I don't want the, the other genetics cross-pollinating in there. I want to know exactly, I want that to be a controlled cross and know exactly what's taking place there. So um, looking at, uh, at what's going on out here in the industry, um, looking at the, the most recent census, uh, almost 90% of the corn acres in the U.S. Um, have some form of a GMO trade in there. Um, you know, that's, that's over 80 million acres of, of traded corn. So what I, want you to, what I want you to think about here is how much traded corn pollen is, is in the air out there. Now that's creating issues on my end from seed production and it's also creating issues on the grower out there that's trying to produce a non-GMO crop to feed to his, his livestock. Um, because you are, you know, corn pollen travels a long way, we'll get into that here in a minute, but I'm subject to pollen drift just like producers are um, down the line. And most of those acres are not just a Roundup Ready or not just a GT. Uh, most of those we're looking at are going to be an easy refuge or going to be a rib. You're going to have three or four different actual traits that are out there. So if, you know, it, you know hypothetically speaking, if I'm looking at one grain of pollen that, that comes in, it may be bringing four traits in with it, not just one. Um, so, you know, so growing a clean seed crop and growing a clean crop on your field to feed to your livestock um, as far as GMO pollen goes is extremely difficult when there's that much GMO pollen out there. And, you know, as Christine was pointing out, you know, corn's one of those high risk, uh, high risk inputs and it's one of those that they, they give us a little more leeway and that's, that's the reason is that there is so much GMO pollen out there. If they were going to keep that, that number down there near zero, there wouldn't be anybody in the industry that would be able to provide clean, uh, completely GMO free seed. So pollen drift. So how far can uh, how far can pollen drift, and, and what kind of an impact can it have? So pollen can remain viable for up to 24 hours. I was showing you in the uh, earlier in the the nursery. We put up those tassel bags and we'll leave them overnight. Um, 
but basically what we're doing is, you know, if I go out at 10 o'clock today and I put up tassel bags, I'm going to leave those until the dew comes off tomorrow morning. The pollen that shed the day I put that up is pretty much going to be dead by the time I get out there. The pollen that we're actually going to take off is, is pollen that's released first thing in the morning. So, you know, pollen can, can remain viable for up to 24 hours. Those are ideal conditions. Um, you know, if we're exceptionally hot, exceptionally dry, um, then, then pollen's not going to last that long, but it can, can stay viable for up to 24 hours. Um, and it, pollen, pollen moves a lot. Um, pollen can travel up to a half mile in just two minutes. Um, you know, that's, that's on a, on a, obviously on a pretty good wind current. Um, but what I want you to realize is that, that how fast pollen can move and how far it can move. Um, so, you know, whether it's, it's my field or yours, we're all subject to some of that. Now, at normal conditions, the average pollen grain settles out within a couple hundred feet of the donor plant. Um, so when we're looking, at, uh, when we're looking at, a, at a corn plant, very, very little corn is actually pollinating itself. It's pollinating the rows either side of it. Um, you know, and, uh, and pollen is subject to drift, um, but on average we can, we can keep it within that, that 200 foot radius. Now when we're talking about seed production and, uh, and actually keeping our, our genetic lines clear, the legal buffer for seed production is 660 feet. All right, well we just said up here it can travel a half mile in just two minutes. So you can see there that, you know, just because we're following legal buffers doesn't mean that we're guaranteed that we're going to be, going to be free of contamination. Um, we have actually bumped our standard up to 1,000 feet uh, here over the last couple of years, um, and that's, that's made a noticeable difference in how, uh, in, as far as GMO contamination, uh, keeping things cleaner. Um, but still, even at 1,000 feet, there are, there are no guarantees that we're going to stay uh, clear, of, uh, clear of all foreign pollen. Um, and that, that goes for our fields as, where, as well as growers' fields. Um, seed industry regulations. So, so there are a number of regulations that, uh, that we have to follow within the industry. Um, USDA, EPA have regulations, private organizations. Um, however, um, None of, these, none of these items are really going to be aimed at uh, non-GMO uh, purity or GMO presence. Um, you know, those are all things that, that we have specific guidelines that we have to follow. So genetic purity, um, we have, when we're talking genetic purity, that's, uh, so basically every year when we produce seed, uh, we have to turn around and, and grow that seed out in winter grow outs to ensure that we don't have, uh, we don't have selfs in there. So we send that stuff down to, uh, down to Puerto Rico, um, and usually two times a year we're, we are testing seed with, uh, uh, with companies to ensure that, that those genetic lines are pure. Um, we, have to, we have to check trait purity every time before, before we sell it. So we gotta make sure in order to meet the, uh, the uh, basically Syngenta's guidelines for their traits, we gotta make sure that the GT um, is, is uh, strong enough. We gotta make sure that there is enough uh, of the insect trait there if it's an insect traded corn. Um, and, and then there are refuge requirements that, that growers have to follow and that we are obligated to provide information on as well. Um, but there is no legal standard for what is non-GMO corn. Um, so, you know, if, if I'm a producer and I go out and I'm, and I'm buying conventional seed corn, um, 
and, and that's probably a good point for us to talk about conventional seed corn. So for if you look in a master's choice hybrid guide, we have three categories of seed. We have organic, we have conventional, and we have traded. Now when we're talking about conventional, uh, that gets used interchangeably with non-GMO, but just because it is a conventional doesn't necessarily mean it's going to meet non-GMO guidelines for non-GMO project. That just means that it is, that it is hybrid seed uh, that is grown without, the, without inserted traits. If there is any GMO presence there, it was not inserted uh, basically at the root there. That, that's something that, that has come over the lifetime of blowing up that inbred and over the, over the course of seed production. So you got, you got three basic categories, and, and there, is no, there is no legal threshold on that conventional corn. Um, so I, could, you know, I, can, I can sell conventional corn on the market that's completely pure, has zero contamination, or I can sell corn that is two or three percent. It all falls under the same, under the same guideline. Yes? Is there any testing or any legal threshold on organic There is no, no legal threshold on organics either. Nope. Um, now, you know, we, we've been talking about uh, specifically the, the project non-GMO, uh, and you know, they're, they're, they're trying to, to establish a standard uh, for conventional stuff and for what non-GMO actually is. Um, and uh, you know, so, so that's, that's coming along, but organic has not, been, has not been established at this point. Organic, you know, obviously is operating in a totally different system, uh, but there, there are no legal thresholds there. Um, so, working towards creating that, creating that standard, and you know, so that's that's changing things at our level. It's changing things at the grower level, um, and you know, I, I know we worked with uh, with some dealers and some customers up here this past year. Did some testing on stuff going into the ground, um, and trying to kind of speed that curve up. We'll get into that here in a little bit, but basically, we're going to be testing on the front end, so we'll have some of that stuff done. Um, have that stuff done in advance this time. Now, kind of reviewing what, uh, what Christina covered, current standard under non-GMO project, uh, in order for it to be verified or carry that butterfly logo, it's going to be 0.25%. Um, non-GMO compliant for livestock feed is 0.9. So if you guys are, gonna, are, are looking for seed to plant for livestock, as long as it's below that 0.9%, you, you are in compliance. It makes no difference if it's below, if it's, you know, if it's uh, 0.85 or if it's 0.05. Uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to basically lock you in for that premium regardless. Um, where we get into the, uh, where this 0.25 comes in is for food grade markets. Um, and that's, that's really what the, what the 0.25 mark is, is aimed at. Yes? If, if, if they are going to have to meet a specific threshold coming out of the field, they either need to buy seed that is pre-tested or they need to test it themselves. So in the, in the industry, um, so in, in our part of the world in Illinois, you know, non-GMO corn has, uh, markets have existed for quite some time, uh, but it's operated much differently. The, the burden of testing has always fallen on the grower. Um, things are kind of shifting in this marketplace. The growers expect the seed companies to be doing that testing. 
um, and and that's that's kind of the way that this market is progressing. Um, if if I'm going to haul non-GMO grain to the elevator on the Mississippi River, Illinois River, Ohio River, it's up to me to test that and make sure I'm planting something that's clean. I also have to make sure that that I'm keeping it clean throughout the growing season, so that when I haul at the elevator and they they run a, a quick scan on it, that I'm below their thresholds. Um, so not all of the untreated corn will be non-GMO. No. No, so we, we will, we're going to test specific lots for um, basically, we're, what, basically what we're going to do is we're going to run the PCRs uh, on the amount of corn we think we're going to need for this specific market. Um, and, and what we're going to try to do, and, and I've got some slides, we'll cover that a little more in detail, but we, we don't want to keep adding cost onto all the units of seed. We want to we kind of concentrate it where it needs to be done. Yes? Correct. Correct. Um, you know, the, the one place where you might see something different there is if a guy is going to grow um, organic grain and haul it to the elevator. Now then he may be subject to a quick scan test at an elevator on his grain. Uh, but for the most part in, on livestock operations, there, there is no threshold. It's becoming a higher standard for non-GMO than it is for people. Right. Right. All right. So non-GMO growers uh, can plant compliant seed on acres to lock in non-GMO premiums. Um, I talked to you about pollen drift and, and the fact that um, as, a seed, as a seed grower, I'm subject to pollen drift. The, you know, the end user is subject to that same pollen drift. Uh, but by buying, buying seed that has been tested in advance, having all my paperwork in line, I can actually lock that premium in. So I'm not subject then. If, if I plant compliant seed and my neighbor's corn cross-pollinates it, then I'm already locked in for my premium and it doesn't matter to me at that point. So basically it's, it's creating some security for, for those growers. And that's, that's where a lot of that demand is going to come from for, for that, uh, that verified seed. And there again, removes the need to, to test harvested product. And as we mentioned before, there is no accurate way to test uh, fermented silage. Because at that point, uh, after, it, after it heats in the pile, it's going to break down the DNA to the point where it's not going to be detectable. Yes? We're still speaking specifically here of livestock feed, right? Correct. Correct. Yes. All right, so this is, a, this is a slide I plugged in kind of after our, uh, our presentation. We, we had a meeting two days ago in Ohio, um, and after we got done, we had a lot of questions. And so what I wanted to do, I, I wanted to add a slide in here where we kind of talked about some of the uh, misconceptions of GMO traits and what they actually do um, and, and why they are uh, basically utilized in, in crops. Um, so I want to kind of cover those. Um, so GMO traits do not increase yield potential. All right. So if you flip open a Master's Choice Hybrid Guide, you're going to see you're going to see a bunch of hybrids that are offered in all different versions, whether it's organic, conventional, traded. You know, for example, I can open up to the MC5370, and I can I can get that one as a conventional, a GT, or a uh, 3122. Now that is the same genetic package. Everything's exactly the same, other than the traits, um, and they all have the same genetic potential. The only thing that the traits do is, first of all, you have a, uh, you have, um, you have a trait there for, um, 
for herbicide tolerance. So it gives me some more leeway on, on spraying. So it basically kind of gives me an option to rescue a crop if, if weeds get away from me. Um, and then it has uh, insect traits in there. Now those insect traits are for very specific insects. Um, you know, basically there's something there specifically for corn borer, specifically for rootworm. Um, and you get limited coverage for some of those above ground nibblers, but, but that's it. Um, a lot of guys have the misconception that I've got to plant I've got to plant traded corn to get yield, to get plant health, to get all these things when the traits aren't really designed for that. Um, that that's kind of a product of, of marketing in the industry. Um, but if I'm looking at that, that 5370, all those versions are exactly the same. The only thing it's doing is that, that uh, insect trait may be limiting some of that insect feeding on my crop. But I can, I can still create the same yield and the same quality with the conventional version as I can with the traded. Um, there again, insect traits only protect yield from specific insect damage. So one of the things, and you know, and this is aside from non-GMO stuff that I always stress to guys, if you're going to buy traits, buy the specific trait that you need for the pest you're concerned about. Um, if, you know, for example, if, uh, if I'm in an area where I have zero rootworm pressure, um, but above ground pests are my issue, it's, it's corn borer or it's uh, earworm or cutworm, I can plant a VIP 3110. I don't pay for the rootworm trait that I don't need, but I have protection above ground. So make sure, that, make sure that you guys are looking at that if you're utilizing insect traits. Utilize the, the traits that you need. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of guys that, that we run into across the country. You know, they're, they're buying fully stacked corn thinking that they're covered for all pests, and that, that a lot of times that's not actually the case. So, so make sure you're planting the right insect traits for the, for the right insects. And, and then the herbicide traits there give you a little more flexibility with weed management, like we talked about before. Ultimately, yield and quality are driven by genetic selection and management. Um, you know, so, it, you know, I, I don't have to go and I don't, I don't have to go and buy uh, traded seed to get the yield I need. Uh, I can still get the same yield uh, with a conventional or non-GMO product. Um, I, I don't have to go and buy that. And, and I think kind of the way, the reason some of the industry is in that mindset is when we look at some of the big seed providers in the industry, some of their top of the line genetics are only offered as traded products. Um, so in, in the minds of the grower, a lot of times, I think the conventional or non-GMO stuff is kind of that lower tiered, older genetics. And you know, that's, you know, with our lineup specifically, that's not the case. You know, if, if, we, if we can develop a hybrid that works really well, we're going to offer that in as many as many versions as we can to get it on as many acres as possible, and you know, and that's that's something else uh, too. And um, Scott mentioned this a little bit earlier, but you know, we've got uh, we've got all all the options in our lineup. Um, for us, you know, we want to be the genetic provider, uh, whether it's an organic farm, a conventional, or a traded. Uh, we just you know we want to develop the genetics for livestock farms um, and get them in the versions that you guys need to, to, uh, to be successful. So this is, uh, we've been talking about, uh, about PCR testing. I wanted to give you a glimpse at, a, at what a PCR test actually looks like and talk about this here for just a minute. So uh, these are some lots that we had tested uh, back previous spring going into the ground. You'll see the GMO uh, quantity percentages, all of those are below that, that 0.9 threshold. So all those would fall in and, and be acceptable for, for livestock feed, but you see there, you know, there are all kinds of variation over that. 
Now, when we're looking at that, that total percentage, that's adding all of those traits together. So basically every commercial trait that is out there right now is included in that test and they all get, get lumped together. Now, if you'll, you'll think back a minute ago, I, I, uh, I was talking about pollen drift and I told you, you know, um, most cornfields, most all cornfields are carrying some kind of trait. Uh, most of them are carrying multiple traits. So if, uh, for example, if, if I test a specific lot and I, I test for Roundup Ready, I test for all these insect traits, one pollen grain could have delivered some of that contamination to all those categories across there. But when we get that, that contamination percentage, those numbers are all added together. So when we're looking at things that are below 0.9, they are exceptionally clean. I mean, exceptionally clean. That's, that's uh, you know, almost perfection in a, in a hybrid seed production. Um, so that, that's, a, that's a threshold that's really, really tough to attain. Um, and, you know, Really, the, the take-homes that, that I want you guys to, to leave with today is if, if you have growers or if you are a grower and, and you're going to pursue these premiums, plant verified or compliant seed. And if you can't do that, make sure that you test it before it goes in the ground. Um, there's not going to be a whole lot of seed in the marketplace that's going to meet these thresholds. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty tough to find. Yes? That, uh, do you know from where that seed was growing out? Um, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you. Um, I'd have to go back and see see where it came from. Um, and you know, and and it's worth mentioning too that you know we're looking at specific lots. So you know that thirty two twenty there that you know that had nothing detected in it. I could have had fifteen different lots that came off that field with you know levels anywhere from zero to you know a half a percent. Um, you know, and, and we've got to run that testing on every single lot as we go through that um, in, order, in order to get it here. All right, so talking a little bit about, about our plan as master's choice um, for these specific operations. Um, we're going to test selected hybrids and lots um, with this PCR testing. So what we've been doing um, prior to what's happening now, we've been running quick scan tests on, on bulk samples. So if I, that field of 3220, if we bring that, that, uh, if we bring that whole thing in and we, uh, we put it in a bin, what I can do is I can, I can take a quick scan sample um, and I can get a good idea if, if I have contamination or not just looking at a bulk sample. Um, but at that point, I'm not looking at individual lots. But anyway, so we, we've, been able to, we've been able to just look at bulk samples to get an idea if there's a problem or not. And we've been able to, uh, to operate, uh, operate in a manner that's kept us pretty clean that way. Now what we're having to do is I'll bring a bulk sample in um, and, and I will take quick scans. And then I'll take the cleanest fields and those are the ones where, where I'll isolate. So if, if I've got that bin flow 3220 and we start size, shelling it and sizing it, um, if I've got a couple of lots of seed that I know I'm going to have several hundred units of, well, those are the ones I'm going to go ahead and PCR so, so I can invest the money in extra testing on those um, because I know in advance they're pretty clean based on the bulk and I know there's going to be enough quantity of seed there that I'm going to get my return out of it in, in sales. Um, so, so that's kind of the way we're going to do that and we will, we will be uh, sampling that stuff um, and and we will, we will have that paperwork on, on each specific lot. Now, we're not going to run PCRs on everything. 
Um, so if, if you need something specific, it's got to be on those specific PCR uh, tested lots, and that's going to be the only stuff that's going to be available with testing. We have another question? Is there, is there going to be a premium on, like, in other words, if you have uh, 30, 32, 20 or whatever, and, and you have uh, some that you ran the PCR test on, so, so pricing is not all done yet. Um, we're, we're still working on that, but there will be there will be a premium on things that have the the PCR uh, and basically have that compliant label. So, so we're we're investing. You know, we're we're having to kind of increase our cost on production a little bit. We're increasing our testing, um, and then on the logistics side, it, it creates a lot of other issues. Um, so, for example, with us, you know, we, we sell primarily through distributors. King's Agriseed's uh, our distributor out here for the East Coast. And uh, when we start running corn in, uh, well, we started this past week, really. Uh, but we start running corn August and September. You know, as soon as we have seed ready to go out, we start, we start shipping it. Um, and so now we're going to add another layer into that in that we've got, to, we've got to isolate specific lots, and then they've got to go to the desired customers. So it's going to create increased logistics for, for us as Master's Choice. It's going to also throw some kinks into the, the distributor's model as well because they've got to bring it into their warehouse and then make sure it gets to the right place. So you, you kind of, any time that you, you get into specialty things and you can't treat everything the same, it, you know, it, it, it increases your, your cost of doing business. We, we are, so I'm working with Christina with where foods come from. The, they're they're going to inspect our facility. We'll go through all the paperwork. So what will happen? Um, so those clean lots are going to have tags on them. Um, and what it, what it will amount to is there's going to be a, a really visible tag that's going to tell you that it's non-GMO compliant. It'll be something that's totally different than what is on our bags right now. Um, and um, we're going to have some that are going to be non-GMO verified. They're going to be below that, that 0.25. Those will be advertised uh, on the non-GMO project website. Uh, so if you, if you Google non-GMO project website or you're looking for that specifically, you can, you can actually find, find those hybrids listed on their page. Um, but uh, but we'll, everything that meets that 0.9 will have that non-GMO compliant tag on it specifically. Yes, we will have some of both. Um, there, there's going to be, you know, and, and that was kind of the thing for us. We started down this path um, before the previous selling season with them because they were already talking about bumping the number up to 0.9, and then they ended up not doing so. And basically the difference between 0.25 and 0.9, you know, increased the amount of seed we could offer greatly um, that, to meet those, those thresholds. Um, so it, it once we once we were at a point where they were working with 0.9, it, it made financial sense for us to invest in in the inspections and in the testing to uh, to get that that seed done. All right. So and paperwork on all those lots uh, will be available to dealers and growers. So uh, basically, all that stuff will be done up front. So what we're trying to avoid is that last minute rushing around testing seed before it goes into the ground. Uh, you know what I want to, when a dealer shows up on the farm, I want them to be able to sell something that they know is they know is compliant, and that's that's where we're trying to get to. 
kind of wrapping up I'm, and I've been bouncing all over the place but I, there are a lot of different things that I wanted to cover do we have any questions or any things that, that, that I didn't cover and you know we just found out like like Christina said that uh, things are kind of up in the air for 2018 I don't anticipate there being a lot of changes based on what I know um, but we'll see where it goes um, but but we do have things on track right now um, that when uh, when when dealers start selling seed in the fall that we're gonna we're gonna have specific lots ready to go. Um, obviously, I've got a, I won't know I won't know exactly what I've got until it gets in my hands and everything's still in the field and everything went in late this year. Um, so um, I, I do know that seed production looks really good this year. Uh, we had a we had a couple of uh, couple of hybrids that had some minor issues, but for the most part, we're in really good shape. So, uh, I'm I'm excited that, that we'll have plenty of seed for for this specific market. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MC Podcast. Be sure to check back with us next Monday for a new episode. If you like anything you heard today, please leave us a review or feedback. We really appreciate it. Uh, thanks for listening, and have a wonderful day.